John's Gospel, chapter 17, and we'll be beginning at the first verse. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, 
the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. John's Gospel is a book that has always been precious to Christians. Many can speak of the significance of this Gospel in their own lives as believers, perhaps in conversion and how you came to faith, or or perhaps you've gone on in a Christian life. This Gospel, perhaps in a unique way, has been an incredible blessing to you as a Christian. Why is it that John's gospel is so very precious and so very deep? Well, I came across a a comment from John Calvin this week that might explain why that is. He observed that John's gospel, in a very special and unique way, reveals the heart of Christ to us. It reveals the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what makes this gospel in particular so rich and so nourishing. Because as you read this gospel, Christ is showing to you his heart. And so you become lost in in the wonder of what you're seeing about the Lord Jesus as you read John's gospel. Well, if Calvin is right, and I think he is then surely the prayer of John 17 takes us into the one of the deepest revelations of the heart of the Lord Jesus. Because this prayer reveals Jesus' heart to us today. And as we work through this prayer in John 17 together, we've seen that it's broken up into three sections according to the three different Uh, people that Jesus is praying for, groups he's praying for. So there are concentric circles that start in the middle and then move outward, getting bigger and bigger as he prays through. In the first five verses, verses one to five, and we started that because we saw Jesus there praying for himself and, and asking the Father to display his divine glory in the Son as he goes to the cross to secure eternal life for his people. And then the prayer expands as Jesus moves in verses 6 through to 19, where he prays for all of those who will follow him, who will have the privilege of of joining in this mission given by the Father. That they will go and take this glorious message of salvation to the world and share of the Lord Jesus. That's the next circle. And this week we come to verses 20 to 26, the third concentric circle. And here we find in verse 20... Jesus making it clear that he is now praying for every believer who will come to believe this message of salvation. This apostolic message that is going to go out, that is going to be shared by his followers. And so we might say that Jesus here is is looking down through the centuries of history and praying for every Christian here in these verses. So if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, he's praying for you here. He's praying for me here. And he's asking the Father for two very specific things in this prayer, in verses 20 to 26, the third circle. He prays about our unity as his people, and then he prays about our future in eternity. 
Now, it's, it's really important as we look at this prayer that we don't take this prayer of the Lord Jesus to the Father and then turn it into a set of instructions for us to carry out. Because the Father is answering this prayer. This prayer is something that God has done and is doing and will do. And so in that way, this prayer should give us great confidence. But alongside that, as Jesus prays, he is teaching us in the content of what he prays. It's interesting, as we think about the life of Jesus, we we read often of him going away to pray, don't we? And there's no record of, of what he prays on those occasions. He leaves the disciples, he finds a quiet place, and he prays. Those prayers aren't recorded. But this prayer in the providence of God, is recorded. Jesus prays it in the presence of the disciples so they can recall it and write it down because one of the things he is doing here is teaching us through his prayer. And that's how I want us to look together at these verses to see what Jesus teaches about these two big subjects in the prayer for our unity there in verse 20 to 23 and then our future in eternity there in verse 24. So let's begin, first of all, seeing that that Jesus' prayer here teaches us about unity, verses 20 to 23. Now, over the last 50 years or so, this prayer has been used many times as a call to unity. And so someone might read verse 21 and say that when Jesus prays there that all of them may be one, uh, what he is doing there is, is he is, is giving a call, and, and people will read that and say, this is a call to lay aside any point of difference or disagreement that stops us from being one in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're saying that we need to create the unity that Jesus is praying for here. Now, there are other passages in God's Word that challenge us deeply about unity. So we might think of a, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, where Paul says, make every effort strong words, to to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So elsewhere in the Scriptures, we are commanded to protect and to keep our unity in Christ. But here in this passage, Jesus isn't calling us to strive for unity or even to protect our unity. He is teaching us what Christian unity is. He is explaining it, and he is telling us it consists in at least three things. That our unity is spiritual. What is Christian unity? It is a spiritual unity. There we read in verse 21 that Jesus prays to the Father that all his followers might be one just as you are in me and I am in you. So here Christ is saying that our unity as believers is like, just as, the words he uses, the unity that exists within the Godhead between Father, Son, and Spirit. So it is a spiritual unity Jesus is speaking of here. It's not that everyone is the same, because there are distinctions, aren't there, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there is a spiritual unity, unity of mind and of heart and of spirit and of purpose. And that is the first thing that Jesus teaches us here about Christian unity. It's not, he's not teaching here that it's organizational unity, where every Christian, in that sense, joins one single universal worldwide church. He's speaking about something different. He is speaking about a deep spiritual connection that we have 
together as the Lord's people. A connection we know and we feel with every other Christian who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we call the communion of the saints, where we know that this connection between believers, whatever faithful church they might come from, it is a spiritual unity rather than organizational. But of course, it is something that we can experience in reality. You know, one of the great blessings of, of traveling to other places, whether it's on holiday or on work, and maybe you're there over the weekend, and, and you go to a church and you get to meet Christians from a different background. And although there might be minor differences of, of practice and of doctrine, you know that you believe the same central things, and there is that wonderful, deep connection because you are the Lord's people, and they are the Lord's people. I remember a couple of years ago on a special family holiday visiting friends around Europe, and although we tried very hard on the first weekend when we were in Denmark, for all our efforts, we could not find a church that we could go to. We turned up, and they said, well, we're not really meeting today, and we're meeting in Danish, and you'll probably find it really hard, so... It's not going to work, and we thought of another one we couldn't get there. And, and so we just met together as a family, and that was nice to do, but we really missed meeting with God's people. And the next week, we were in Cologne in Germany, staying with friends, and we were determined to find a church on that Sunday. And, and I researched it, and we traveled right across the city. It took us over an hour. It was a real stress to try and get the family across the city, but we did it. And when we stepped into the church there on the Sunday afternoon when they had their service in another church's building, it was like stepping into a haven. You know, we enjoyed seeing all kinds of different things on holiday and meeting all kinds of different people, but there is something special, something special about being with the Lord's people and spending time with them in worship and in fellowship. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here, this spiritual unity, that whatever our ethnicity, whatever our background Whatever our nationality, whatever our life circumstances, we are spiritually united just as the Father and the Son are one. Unity is spiritual, but also unity comes from union with the triune God. That's the next thing Jesus shows us here, that the ground for our spiritual unity is our union with Christ. How does someone come to be joined to Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 20, it comes when we believe the message that's shared. It comes as we trust in Christ as Savior, having heard that message of salvation. And then, because Christ is joined to the Father and joined to the Spirit, and because we by faith have been joined to Christ, so we're in him, then we are joined to the triune God. And because we are joined to the triune God by faith, we are therefore joined to every other believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So through faith, we're joined to Jesus. Then we come to know God as Father, Son, and Spirit, because we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is joined there in the Trinity. And then, because every other believer is also joined to Christ by faith, and is joined to God in the Trinity in that sense, we are joined to one another. Jesus makes that very clear. Let's just see how he teaches that in the passage. Look at verse 21 where he says, May they also be in us, 
That's that coming into the triune God. And then he unpacks the steps as we have jumped down to verse 23. He says, I in them, union with Christ, and you in me, Christ, in union with Father, Son, and Spirit, so that they may be brought into complete unity, joined together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like a whole orchestra is in tune because they tune to the A note played by the principal oboe at 440 hertz. So every believer is in union together because we are joined to our God in that sense. Through union with the triune God, we are in union with one another. And so the Trinity is not just the pattern of our spiritual unity, Our being taken up into the Trinity is the source of it. And that means that our Christian unity is grounded in something that is incredibly real. It's not just a nice thing we feel with one another. It's not just a a warm fuzziness that's there. It is something real, friends. Because we're joined to God. And we're joined to each other. Because the God of heaven lives in me and lives in you. We are one in him. As one African believer puts it, the Jesus in me meets the Jesus in you and they shake hands. So this unity isn't something we create. Rather, it's something we enjoy because we have been brought into union with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, just in passing, isn't that an amazing way to think about salvation? You know, we have so many wonderful ways in Scripture. The Bible gives us pictures and explains what it means to be a Christian. And it's right that we use all of them to bring out all the various aspects of what it means to be saved. But perhaps this is one that we don't think of or, or speak of as much as we should, that to be a Christian is to be drawn into the triune God. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, next time someone says to you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You could say, it means to be drawn in to the triune God. If that doesn't blow someone's mind, I don't know what will. Now, the challenge is to explain that clearly <laughs> and not confuse them in that. But isn't it? I mean, people say Christianity is boring and dead. Well, come on. Is there anything more than that? To be drawn into God by faith and to know the life that comes from knowing him. So unity comes through our union with the triune God. That's the next thing Jesus says. And then thirdly, we see that unity is visible. Unity is visible. What is spiritual and grounded in our union with the triune God can be seen by those who look on. And as we start to think about this visible aspect, well, that's where the challenge comes to us, isn't it? Because whilst we don't create this unity, we are called to display this unity. And note, friends, it is a visible unity. I've been really struck this week looking at this passage, thinking about the visibility of this. When people see our love and our peace and our sharing with each other, they look on... And Jesus says it will be possible to make two deductions from that, two inferences, two connections that flow from it, two observable things. From that observation, two things flow. 
that the first is in verse 21 and 23, where there will be this connection that people will believe that God has sent Christ, that Christ is whom he claims to be, that the Father has sent him. That's the first deduction from that visible unity. And the second is also in verse 23, where people will be able to see the Father loves believers as they love the Lord Jesus Christ, as he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. So this visible unity that people can look on and see will point people to the reality of who Christ is and the amazing work that God has done in our hearts because there is no other way to explain why people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of interests and all kinds of personalities would want to be together and live together as a family like this. Only that the God of heaven has come to the earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has changed hearts and transformed them and his love is there in them because there's no other way to explain this love in their hearts. Two things should strike us from this element of visible unity. First of all, what a privilege, friends. What a privilege that God uses us to point people to who Jesus is and his work in this world. But then secondly, what a challenge to us as well. We don't create this unity, but we are to display it to the world. And so, friends, is it not therefore true that this has to mean that being part of a church of Jesus Christ means more than coming along just to receive? It must mean there is a giving and receiving in that expression of unity together. Not just coming to be a consumer when I come to a service or a home group or any other meeting. It must imply some kind of participation with with each other in a visible public way that people see something. That we give of ourselves in Christian love to one another, in caring conversations, in practical love. That we choose, as we sung, to sacrifice for ourselves, in, for others, sorry, of ourselves in hundreds of ways through the week and on a Sunday. Now, there, there might be times when our circumstances mean that we can do little other than receive. In the providence of God, that might be our circumstances, but that's not the norm, is it? It's not the norm, and it shouldn't be our choice. We need to see that what Christ is calling us to here is something that is participatory, not just observational, as we display that unity together. So to press this home to our hearts, I wonder, when you think about a meeting, how is it you think about going along? What goes through your mind when you think, well, Should I come to the evening service, or should I go to the prayer meeting, or should I go along to home group this week? Do I think, well, does a passage interest me? Have I been enjoying the series so far? Who's taking the prayer meeting? It shouldn't be those questions, primarily, friends, should it? It should be that every time we get the chance to gather together as the Lord's people, We have the chance to express something which is amazing. We have a privilege and a challenge to bear a testimony to those who come to our services and meetings and to those who look on from the outside so that they might see something about the reality of God's work in Christ. Now that's a great reason to come, isn't it? (laughs) 
And it's a great reason to linger afterwards rather than rush off. So Jesus here teaches us that our unity is spiritual, that our unity is grounded in our union with the triune God, and that our unity is visible. But then we're going to move on in verse 24 to look at the other thing Jesus prays for in the middle here of this prayer, where he prays about eternity. Our second thing, Jesus teaches us about eternity in verse 24. Now, Here we're going to see that whilst we might desire many things, and perhaps we have a long list of things that we want from Jesus, even today, here we read Christ speaking directly to his Father about what he wants for us about our eternity. Look down with me at verse 24 where Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. The first thing that Jesus wants for his people for eternity is that they would be with him. The Son of God wants you to be with him for eternity. You know, some people have the sadness of living their whole lives under a cloud of thinking that no one ever wants them. Maybe because of a sad family background or perhaps a series of disappointments in relationships, or maybe even friendships that just feel so shallow. And there is a real emptiness in them because they feel abandoned and unloved. Note this, friends, that if you are a Christian today, Christ says that he wants you to be with him for all of eternity. And that's better than the acceptance and love of anyone else. You are his. He's expressed that again and again through this prayer. And because you are his, he wants you with him forever. That's where he's going. He's going to the Father's right hand. He's headed for heaven. He says, Father, I want them with me there. It's it's, it's amazing to think that this is so important to the Lord Jesus Christ that he prays the Father might do that. And remember, nothing in heaven or on earth can stop this prayer from being effective. Because the perfect Son of God is never going to refuse his one and only Son when he asks for it. He won't. You know, when children make all kinds of requests to their parents, some of them are good and right to grant, and some of them aren't good, and we don't grant them as parents, do we? But Jesus' requests are always right, and so always answered by the Father. So friends, grasp this, that when Jesus prays that the Father would would bring you to be with him, nothing can stop that if you're a Christian. Nothing can stop that. Not your sin, because his cross has paid for it. Not your doubts, Because his hold on you is stronger than any of your doubts. Not even your lukewarm heart, because Christ's heart is strong and clear when he says, I want them with me. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, the whole of your eternity is tied up, secure and certain in this prayer of Christ. Because it will be answered. It's sure. Nothing can break it. 
But what will it be like to be with Christ for all of eternity? Well, that's the second thing Jesus prays for in verse 24, where he says, I want them to be with me and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. So here Christ is saying, I want them with me. And then he tells us what that's going to be like. Our experience for eternity is going to be an ongoing and unceasing revelation of Christ in his glory. That we'll see his glory given by the Father to him in eternity forever. Because Christ has completed that work of salvation. Because Christ now sits at the Father's right hand. And so the greatest and most wonderful thing about eternity will be that ongoing revelation of the glory of Jesus. John pictures that reality in Revelation 21 verses 23 and 24 where he describes our future home in this way. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. There it is. There it is. God's glory shining forth from the Lamb, the Son of God who gave himself for us. And this is what Jesus is praying God would show to every believer when they come to heaven. And friends, that is the most thrilling thing about our salvation. We should be so careful that we never treat Jesus Christ as a means to an end. He is not just the way to the greatness of heaven. He is in himself, in his glory, the very focus of the greatness of heaven. And of all the good and right things that should thrill our hearts about eternity, that heaven might will be the end of our troubles, and that's true. That heaven will be that great reunion with all those whose rest is won and have gone before us, and that's true. Surely most of all, The greatest thing that we long for and we look forward to about heaven is Christ and his glory shining forth with such splendor and with such brightness that we need no other light. Friends, here the Lord Jesus Christ is praying that you might see and know that. That you might know that you are his that you might be taken to be with him in heaven and that your experience for all of eternity will be that ongoing awe of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as I close, can I just say that the only way to be sure of this future sight of Christ in glory is to see him by faith today. As Ian Hamilton puts it, We will not behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven if we do not behold the glory of Christ by faith on earth. You know, this weekend is the first Formula One Grand Prix in Miami, Florida. And if you've been reading any of the reports of how they've been setting it all up or even watching the videos of what they've been doing there, 
the hype and the excitement around it has been huge. The organizers have built a three-mile-long racetrack that runs around the brand-new Miami Dolphins NFL Stadium. They've spent all the time and expense of putting down the asphalt so they can just race on it for one weekend. In the middle of a car park, they have built a marina, filled it with water, and put yachts there. They've brought sand, I guess, from a beach somewhere nearby, and they've put it there so they can have a beach club. And they've invited hundreds of celebrities from all over the world to come and to bring all the glitz and the glamour to that occasion. And the world is watching because the world is seeking glory. The world is looking for something great. Because we're all glory seekers, aren't we? We're made for that. That's what we long for. We spend our lives seeking glory in sports and celebrity and everything else. But friends, they are all sources of vain glory. Because they don't satisfy and they pass away. But the glory of the Son is the only glory that satisfies for all of eternity. Because it is the glory of God. So will you come to him to know that glory by faith today? Will you see him for who he is? Will you trust in his work on the cross? And if you do, then your joy will be that you will be with him for all of eternity. And you will know the glory, glory, glory that shines forth from the sun upon all those who dwell in Emmanuel's land.